Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Whether it's Lemurians making their home on Mount Shasta, aliens alighting in the middle of Illinois, meat falling from the Kentucky sky, or cows being drained of blood in Oregon, accounts of unexplained phenomena are on the rise. But why have so many Americans opened themselves up to fringe beliefs and conspiracy theories when our empirical understanding of the world has increased? Cultural historian Colin Dickey joins us on the show this week to talk about his new book, Unidentified, in which he traverses the country in search of the cryptids and conspiracy theories that have stuck with us for the past few centuries, evolving alongside the dramatic changes in our frontiers, scientific knowledge, and cultural mores. Thank you so much for joining us, Colin. Cool. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So your last book, Ghostland, explored America's haunted places, which are susceptible to a slightly different form of unidentified phenomenon. So what's different for you about the unexplained stories and mysteries and conspiracy theories that you're exploring in The Unidentified? I mean, with with Ghostland, I was going around to um, haunted places, to, um, you know, whatever, haunted cities, haunted houses and hotels and things like that looking for ghost stories and sort of what those ghost stories said about American history, about place, about, you know, these buildings. And with this book, when I started zeroing in on um, UFOs and aliens and places like Area 51 out in the middle of the desert or with uh, cryptids, which is the catch-all for things like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, the Chupacabra, um, you know, these things also tended to be in sort of uh, wilderness areas, be it, you know, the, the forests of Northern California or the Himalayas or, um, you know, wherever. And what it occurred to me is is the, the locus of this book, uh, you could say, is, is the kind of frontier or, or the wilderness at the edge of civilization, that that seems to be both um, where these creatures tend to, you know, exist. They, you know, it's sort of right on the edge. It's not in the middle of the desert. It's, it's the desert just outside of Las Vegas. You know, it's, it's the Pine Barrens of New Jersey. It's places that are sort of on the edge of civilization, but right over the line. Um, and so that seemed to be kind of where this book was situated in a way that felt a little different from Ghostland. That's a really interesting way to connect things that seem really quite disparate. You know, not all conspiracy theories involve UFOs and not all cryptids came from outer space. And, you know, 
meat falling from the sky. Who knows what that has to do with? But there are a lot of characteristics shared by the Lemurians and the Ultimahaha and cattle mutilation. So what do you think connects all of these different stories within American culture? You know, when I when I went back and I started to try and unpack the history, one of the things that uh, came to mind or, you know, one of the things that came across in my research was this idea that, um, you know, the, the kind of beginning of all this, you could probably say, is uh, this guy Ignatius Donnelly, who writes this book on Atlantis in the 1870s, um, which is the first real book. I mean, Plato talks about Atlantis, but he talks about it sort of in a kind of philosophical figure speech kind of way, like he's just sort of imagining a utopia. But uh, Ignatius Donnelly comes along and writes this book where he's like, this is a real place. Uh, it has an archaeology. It has an anthropology. We can talk about it as like a real, um, real location. And what occurs to me is that that is really around the time when the map has gotten filled in. So if you if you think of sort of earlier medieval conceptions of the world, you had, you know, kind of the known world, and then you had the kind of fringes where you would, you know, put little monsters on the map and say, here, there be dragons, basically, like the places that we don't know about. And those places are, by and large, gone by the end of the 19th century. And almost as soon as they are, you have people like Ignatius Donnelly coming along and saying, you know, let's imagine, although he doesn't say let's imagine, he says, this place is real, you know, there is a real place, but it exists outside of the filled in map, basically this immediate yearning for a place that is still untouched by civilization, you know, still doesn't, you know, it doesn't have a McDonald's or a, a railway station or something. And so what really connects a lot of these things, at least for me, and as I was sort of trying to trace the evolution of these various things, what, what seemed to really connect them all was um, this desire for that place that was, was just outside the reach of civilization. And they all seem to come about right around the time that civilization had kind of filled in the entire globe, for better or for worse. You write in the introduction to the book how wildly popular a lot of these conspiracy theories and cryptid stories still are today, and in fact how interest in them has grown, which anecdotally you can see in ancient aliens on the History Channel and similar shows. And yet, we have even fewer unknown territories today, fewer frontiers than we did in 1900. So why do you think there's a resurgence of interest in these unexplained, unidentified phenomena? I mean, yeah, certainly, you know, these things wax and wane and there, there are times when it seems like people are really into Bigfoot and then there are times when, you know, people are kind of, you know, moved on to the next weird thing. Um, and you're right, right now we seem to be in a real period where people are really fascinated by this stuff. And I think, again, you know, what's, what's happened is the world has gotten even more connected since the rise of the internet. And so, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, it was like, um, you, could, you could learn about foreign cultures, but you didn't, you know, unless you went there, you wouldn't really know, you know, what was going on or whatever. And, you, you know, you couldn't just immediately look up anything on your phone and figure out what the answer was. So there was still a, a little bit of, you know, the unknown out there, but, but with the rise of, you know, Google and social media, again, you know, our world seems to be collapsing once again, and maybe, you know, it's possible that that's driving now our, um, our, once again, our desire for things that just really exist beyond the social web, you know, the Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, which really escape our ability to kind of capture them and, and render them onto, you know, Twitter or Instagram. I think what's really interesting is the way that a lot of these monsters seem to come out of the collision between different cultures, 
Uh, like you read about the Jersey or the Leeds Devil, which could be ascribed to the collision of indigenous and colonizer cultures in early America. And I wonder if that element plays into the story today, too, because we're all so much more interconnected and there's so many more cultures and ideas colliding. Right. Oh, yeah, I definitely think that is true. And and certainly a lot of this stuff, you know, as you said, sort of comes about from um, people borrowing or, you know, in some cases, sort of outright appropriation of, um, you know, indigenous cultures or just that sort of collision that happens. So, you know, the abominable snowman is um, a more or less stable part of Tibetan folklore for, you know, generations until suddenly you have a bunch of Anglo explorers who are trying to summit Mount Everest and suddenly this thing kind of almost like a virus that sort of jumps its host and, and then sort of is loose on the rest of the world and all of a sudden everybody is interested in, in the abominable snowman and the Yeti as a thing that um, is no longer just a, a part of, you know, a culture but now like a real provable fact that if we send enough expeditions out to the Himalayas we should be able to bring back you know, uh, you know, evidence of. So yeah, so so there is this kind of shifting of cultures that that will often trigger or kind of reconfigure one of these stories into something in a new way. So how do we see that play out in the states? That's where all the places you visited are: Mount Shasta, Darien, Georgia, etc. I mean, where do we see these collisions and appropriations happening here? You know, it's interesting to me because you know, once I sort of posited that this was um, something that you could trace through the idea of the frontier or the borderland, you start to see the way it plays out in um, white America's history of um, you know appropriating and, and confiscating uh, native lands. So, you know, I mean, you mentioned before the idea that the the Jersey Devil got its start when the New Jersey Pine Barrens were really on the edge of the colonial frontier and and the colonial idea of what North America was. And then, you know, the United States starts pushing westward and you find it again in a place like Alton, Illinois, where there is um, this this painting on a rock of, of something uh, called the Piazza, which is a um, this giant bird that supposedly, you know, devours humans. And there are, you know, these, these really interesting and, and fascinating stories by uh, the native cultures who were living in Illinois at the time that that settlers and explorers kind of note down and then forget about. But then in 1977, uh, so long after, you have this story out of Lawndale, Illinois, which is a couple hours from Alton, um, about a woman who is um, in the backyard with her, her six-year-old son, and these two giant birds swoop down from the sky and pick up uh, her son and and carry her son for about 20 or 30 feet before she's able to get them to, to drop him and um, you know sort of unclear what happened I don't that's that's one of the ones where I really don't have a good explanation of what exactly that was but um, you know uh, uh, cryptozoologists who are sort of looking for an explanation for this they immediately they go back to Native American Thunderbird stories and the story of the Piazza and they start making these connections so they start looking at um, Native American oral legend and folklore, not in terms of what it means for the, the culture that produced these stories, but in terms of, you know, is this empirical proof of something that I'm now trying to prove in the 20th century, you know, America. So that's, you know, again, it's sort of this very weird interplay where it's, um, it's not always a, a case of direct appropriation, although often it is strongly appropriation, but there is a very peculiar attempt to kind of wed you know, Native American folklore to uh, modern, uh, you know, cryptozoological obsessions, for lack of a better term. 
Yeah, you touch on this a little in the context of the West and ranchers in the West in particular with the right-wing militia movement. And there's this one quote you dug up from the right-wing militia member John Trockman, who in 1999 told a journalist, quote, the people that were screwed over first in America were the Native Americans and blacks. Now it's our turn. So we've got to line up with them. They know more about it than we do. What is going on in that statement? And what does that self-identification of ranchers with the other have to do with the unidentified phenomena you talk about? Right. So so this happens all the time where the far right, you know, the sort of conspiratorial right wing often takes a legitimate concern that the left or, you know, minorities, you know, blacks and Native Americans or, you know, other people in this culture have um, and makes it suddenly about themselves in this very strange way. And, and again, we're watching this play out in real time where uh, the, the right wing has said for forever, oh, you know, the government is coming for our guns. They're going to, you know, disappear us in vans and take away our civil liberties. And that's that's literally what's happening in Portland. But the right is, is silent because it's it's not happening to them. It's happening to um, you know left wing protesters who are who are protesting police violence. So so that's that's happening right now. But its its antecedents go back decades. And there was a classified government project called Operation Garden Plot from the 1960s, which was basically how the military was going to respond to race riots or protests or you know stuff that was that was going to be coming from the left from. Um, urban cultures from from black communities, from veterans, and it was about how to respond to these things militarily, and it was seized upon by um, right-wing conspiracy theorists and spun into a plot about how the government was going to come for them. And so, th- so again, this this happens all the time. And that when when that that quote from uh, Trockman that you mentioned is, you know, just sort of one example of the ways in which people are projecting legitimate fears that really don't apply to them onto themselves in a way that that refracts and reflects a sort of strange uh, dynamic in in American conspiracy theories. And, um, you know, we're seeing it happen in real time, but it's it's antecedents sort of run through the history of the West, I think. Or it's like they're shifting some actual legitimate feeling they have of alienation or abandonment because of global economic forces beyond their control onto this other like aliens or just the government which i think comes out in the way people respond to cattle mutilation in particular which you have a whole chapter on um so in the 1970s small and part-time cattle ranchers were experiencing a lot of mysterious cases of cows being mutilated and were saying that it was either aliens or the government or some lurid conspiracy of both and I would love for you to talk more about these uh, cattle mutes, as they're called out west, because they've come back. Right. So, so right. So, in the very late '60s and early '70s, you have a couple stories where ranchers come out and they find um, their their cattle have died in, in seemingly mysterious ways. You know, they'll they'll say things like, you know, the blood was completely drained, uh, sexual organs in the eyes were removed, but everything else was left intact. There were cuts that were too clean to be done by an animal that had to be done by some sort of, you know, surgical instrument or whatever. And this starts to take uh, hold of, of kind of, you know, American consciousness sort of in the early 70s when, um, not coincidentally, there, there are a series of shocks in the cattle industry, uh, basically due to sort of government um, interference during the Nixon administration. So people start sort of fixating on this idea that these these cows are 
being killed in unnatural ways and they start to blame the government. There are stories of, you know, these mysterious helicopters that are, you know, seen in the area. And it, it gets so bad that, uh, you know, ranchers are taking out their guns basically and shooting at, you know, local news choppers and things because they assume that they are the government come for their, their cows or whatever. And it starts to be a sort of government conspiracy theory. And then by the late 70s, it has been reborn as um, this is actually the work of aliens. And yeah, as you say, I mean, when you when you dial down, I mean, first of all, these these deaths turn out to be not all that unusual or uncommon, um, you know, and, and once researchers actually start looking into it, they they are able to really um, prove pretty definitively that this it's the work of scavengers. And one of the one of the quotes that I came across that I think is really revelatory is that, you know, veterinarians aren't trained in forensic pathology. You know, they are trained to keep animals alive. So they're not actually very good. And it's not, not they're bad veterinarians. They're just not trained to look at the corpse of a cow and figure out how it got that way. You know, and neither are local sheriffs. It's not so much an uncanny mystery so much as a thing people aren't trained to do and so they don't maybe necessarily have all the tools to do it accurately but once you actually looked into it you know these these cow mutilations aren't mutilations they're just sort of you know scavenger work um but it it does reflect maybe a mentality of of somebody who sort of lives on the land and works on the land but maybe doesn't know the land as well as they might and thus sort of tends towards kind of conspiratorial or you know uncanny explanations for what may be actually happening and 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 again like you know one of the things that that's that was really noteworthy is the fact that the people singling out these cattle mutilations as significant were were the small-time part-time ranchers who had less experience with cattle and cattle death and not the sort of bigger you know, intergenerational families who were, who, you know, for better or for worse, were used to seeing this, knew what it was, and knew that it wasn't particularly all that worthy of note. Well, and could survive, you know, one cow dying. Exactly, yeah. So why do you think cattle mutes came back? Because I had never seen a story of cattle mutilation until October. Suddenly there were a ton cattle mutes everywhere, NPR reports there, unexplained, not one drop of blood, and it's the same regions you're writing about. Like, to me, it seems like just further evidence of how the 70s never really left us, both in terms of the destruction of American industry and cattle mutes. It went away not because somebody came along and, you know, conclusively proved what was happening and sort of dusted their hands and everybody said, OK, great. I mean, even though even though, as I said, you know, researchers were able to conclusively prove what was going on, that didn't take that, you know, telling somebody the, the truth often doesn't do much to actually um, dissuade them of the belief. So the belief just sort of died off because um, people's attention were, were fixated elsewhere. But, but pretty much any time, you know, these things return, people will act as though, oh my gosh, you know, there's no explanation for this. You know, anything that looks unusual, what I, you know, what I find in the book and I find both fascinating and a little disheartening is, is anytime anybody is presented with anything unusual, there will be a segment of the population that jumps immediately to the wildest and most bizarre explanation you know there's there's a kind of reverse occam's razor that happens of you know yeah so the you know these cattle died in oregon and they you know people didn't immediately know how and why they died so rather than kind of methodically work through all the possibilities from most likely to least likely they you know ran to the press and they said something crazy is happening and you know, I mean, it's it's hard not to want to, you know, delve into that story. It's hard not to want to, you know, jump on that bandwagon. So, you know, that's that's probably going to keep happening. They're probably still going to be, you know, we'll see that story again in a couple of years, I'm sure. 
So if proving that it was not aliens that killed your cow doesn't work, and if a lot of these stories keep resurfacing over the decades or the centuries, what place do you think conspiracy theories and cryptids and these notions of the unidentified have in our society? And is it benign or is it worrying? And are there, is there any moral dimension here? Right. I mean, where it ultimately came down is I, I feel like there's kind of two strands that are interwoven often, but, you know, maybe can sometimes be teased apart. I think there is certainly a kind of benign desire for wonder and magic in the world. Um, and, and certainly as, as a result of, or, in, you know, reaction to modernization and industrialization, this desire for something that's still out there unexplained, that seems... That seems pretty harmless to me. I mean, you know, there are a lot of ways in which it can it can go wrong. Um, you know, and I think you know, ancient aliens, with its kind of uh, suggestion that you know maybe the Egyptians didn't build the pyramids that it was built by you know aliens. I mean, there's a kind of there's kind of low key uh, bigotry and chauvinism there that runs through those kind of narratives about you know we don't believe that these non-Western cultures were capable of of doing the things that they very obviously did, but. You know, setting that aside, I think, you know, kind of love of the Loch Ness Monster or, or whatever. I mean, that seems that seems pretty benign and harmless. Um, and I, I encourage it. And I, you know, I mean, I went out, you know, cryptid hunting and I had a lot of fun. I think it's cool. But the, the flip side of that, I think, is the kind of conspiratorial element. And I think that comes from a desire to reconcile the order and the chaos of the world around you that you perceive that is terrifying to you and trying to find a, a mechanism or an explanation that, um, you know, puts some kind of order, even if it's malevolent, right? You know, so it's, it's easier to think that the Illuminati pull the strings behind the scenes than it is for some people to, to admit that the world is just random chaos. And I think that's, that's when things start to get a little dangerous because that's, you know, often where you sort of open yourself up for, you know, anything from sort of anti-Semitism to the deep conspiratorial attitude that, um, that can really destabilize, um, you know, an individual and also a community. So I think it's, it's a balance of looking for that, that wonder and that magic and being open to that possibility without backing yourself into a corner where you're, you're coming up with increasingly paranoid and problematic ways of describing the world around you. And, you know, it's a balancing act. We have links in the show notes to Colin Dickey's new book, The Unidentified, Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained, along with a number of links to some fun phenomena, including my favorites, those cattle mutes. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.